Welcome to the second series of the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast. We're really excited to be back for a second season and to be able to continue to connect readers and writers in the Midlands and far beyond. You can download our podcast episodes from all the places you would normally get your podcasts every Thursday and follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at BHamLitFest. All of our festival events can be found on our website www.birminghamliteraturefestival.org. In this week's episode, we welcome American essayist and poet Hanif Abdurraqib, who talks to our very own Birmingham Poet Laureate Casey Bailey about his latest book, A Little Devil in America. Hanif's book offers a beautiful insight into the history of black performance in America, including cultural icons such as Josephine Baker, Aretha Franklin and Dave Chappelle. Join Hanif and Casey as they talk about the process of writing a book that combines memoir with history and that is a real love letter to black cultural art and performance. Hello, wonderful people. My name is Casey Bailey, and I am blessed and privileged to be here with Hanif Abdurakib to talk about his latest book, A Little Devil in America. Now, Hanif is a prize-winning poet, essayist, cultural critic from Columbus, Ohio. He's the author of the highly praised poetry collections, The Crown Ain't Worth Much, and a fortune for your disaster, the essay collection, They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us, and the New York Times bestseller, Go Ahead in the Rain, Notes to a Tribe Called Quest. Hanif, how are you today? I'm good, Casey. Thanks for hanging with me. Uh, it's an absolute blessing and a pleasure. So, I mean, it's, it's great for me being able to have this conversation with you. I always joke, I've, I've done a couple of interviews now for uh, Birmingham Literature Fest, and I get the the kind of pleasure of asking you these questions that really are just secretly things I want to know before anybody else gets to hear the answers and hopefully they enjoy it too. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to kind of jump in with what might be quite a, a big question or a, quite a complex question, but it's the one that, that kind of circulates in my head uh, thinking about this book is how would you define this book? And I'll tell you why I ask before um, before I, I put the pressure on you to answer it. Um, having read this book, it's one of those books that instantly there are people who I know I feel like need to read this book. Um, and so when I say to them, you've got to read this book, and they say, oh, well, what's it about or what is it? It's actually about so much, and it is so much. Um, that I wonder, how do you define what you've what you've created here? Oh, uh, yeah, that's, that's very kind and thoughtful. Thank you. I mean, I think for me, um, the best way to define the book is that it's a multitudinous exploration of performance and what performance is and the very ways that performance, the many ways that performance shows up, um, not on a stage or not on a screen or not necessarily for an audience of anyone, but an audience of the performers on making, which is how there's, you know, why there's essays in the book about spades or about um, complicated performances of affection or these kind of things. I wanted to think about every route, every route I've ever taken to a type of performance, um, for better or worse, sometimes for worse. Yeah. Um, so one of the one of the things that um, really struck me, um, having read the book, I, I went in and started kind of thumbing through the acknowledgements and, and stuff. And in the acknowledgements, you credit uh, two people in particular that I noticed. You credit um, Maya Millet for, you say, steering the book in, and, and I apologise because I'm paraphrasing, uh, in a new or better direction. And Ben Greenberg and everyone at 
uh, Random House for sticking with the book while it shifted, I think is a, is a word you use. So how much of, what I'd really love to know is how much of a journey has the book been on from kind of the inception in your mind to what it became? And could you maybe map out some of that journey for us? Yeah, I mean, initially the book was going to be about, um, or the book was going to at least kind of revolve around um, appropriation and blackface and the history of minstrelsy. But okay. I very quickly realized that that was not a pleasurable experience. Like writing about that, um, I was centering whiteness more than I wanted to. And I didn't really find myself too keen on centering whiteness at that level. Um, and so I began to ask myself a better question, which is a question of what would this book look like if I extracted um, that desire to kind of make sense of or to try to unravel the desires of, of whiteness as it's projected upon Black performers and Black performance. Uh, and if I did that, could I get to a more pleasurable examination of what I have loved about performing and performances and watching performances? Um, and, and I think that is essentially what, what, what I ended up, what ended up happening. I mean, it, you know, that's what ended up kind of, uh, when I got, when I sat down with Maya, who edited the book with me, and we began to ask questions of who the book was for and what the book wanted to celebrate, that became, um, you know, a lot clearer to me and it made the book easier to edit and it made the book a more exciting book to write uh, when I decentered the desires of or the, 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 the actual history of, of whiteness. Amazing. And I think that it's interesting that, as, as you say, that process wouldn't have necessarily been a pleasurable one or wasn't a pleasurable one, kind of looking it through that lens of how has whiteness impacted or how has whiteness appropriated um, what we what we see as black culture but what's interesting is even having said that the book is not it's not just a collection of happiness either it, it has so many so much somber and heavy notes but it's carried by you know this real kind of idea of joy um, which really is kind of like the metaphor for what you were just saying flows through the book of these punches of real happiness and these moments of real sadness um, and I think I, I, you know, I, I can honestly say I've read uh, an awful lot of books, but I've never read a book that I would directly compare to this book. And I think I knew that that was happening after maybe the, the I read the first chapter and it ends around uh, you're speaking about your mother's passing and it feels really sharp and, and I didn't expect it. And then around the second chapter where you talk about... Um, kind of there's another point of real heavy kind of somberness and I wonder when you wrote the book did you was there a a feeling of a need to to juxtapose the two or did that just naturally kind of occur as you went through these themes and how they impacted yourself oh I think it naturally occurred I think that it's hard for me to look at um to look at pleasure or joy as one would say um and not think about it as something that is earned through a very clear understanding of, of grief or what can be lost or what is on the other side of joy or pleasure or these things. Um, and so I think I'm always kind of writing towards that understanding. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm always kind of um, writing towards a very clear understanding of what uh, 
what I've known to be on the other side of joy or happiness or pleasure, all these things, because it makes my understanding of joy that much clearer and that much more, uh, that e much easier to identify, but also much easier to celebrate uh, because I know that it is not promised. It's not a guaranteed thing. None of us are, none of us are, are promised or guaranteed or even all the time deserving of anything that makes us feel good. You know what I mean? Um, Absolutely. And so, you know, because of that, I, I think that I am uh, more keen to revel in uh, pleasure when it arrives to me because I don't know, uh, can't say for sure when it will, uh, how long it'll stay or when it'll go. Yeah, and I, and I wonder that the note that I made when I was when I was kind of trying to unpick that for myself is how much of that, uh, and you'll find probably throughout this, I, I have a thing about process, um, and I always think about what was the process of that kind of coming to fruition. How much of that um, kind of push and pull between really personal moments and things that were a kind of far beyond yourself. How much of that came down to the editing, to the process of looking through and saying, is this too, is this bit too much about me or is there enough of me in here? No, it is. Yeah. And it was the latter. It was, um, it was always, um, is there enough of me in here? Which I'm um, always asking because it's a question to me of, um, are people able to trust me? Am I leading people down a path that is generous? And am I inserting enough of myself to let them know that I'm here? That I'm here with them and I'm walking alongside this with them. And that I'm not an expert. That I kind of think that I have to insert myself to remind myself and others that I am someone who has uh, lived a life that is not like everyone else's life. And um, because of that, I'm, I'm only, I'm not even an expert on myself. And so, um, you know, it, it serves then um, that I am uh, an expert on, I am not an expert on, on my own corners of, of my own life. And so uh, I think that makes maybe the work a little bit more comfortable for people to approach because I'm not preaching. I'm not, you know, I think I'm kind of wading through various modes of uncertainty um, and I'm doing it very much on my own and asking people to witness it as it happens. What I'd, I'd really love to know is when you were coming up with the titles for chapters, you know, some of them, it's almost like a kind of like, it's almost like a veil. So I'm thinking specifically of um, the Beyonce um Beyonce Super Bowl performance and jobs that I wish I never did. I, I'm not actually looking at the book. I, it's the title is something along those lines, and it seems so trivial and funny. And as we walk through the chapter, it, it very quickly becomes very serious. Um, and I wonder, did you was it a plan to create those titles that kind of, you know, as soon as I read that title, I thought, what really? Um, how, like, how do these two things tie up? And then you get through and, and you draw connections that I think, you know, a lot of people just wouldn't even see. Um, and how much did you plan to make those titles kind of enticing 
without giving away everything that you're trying to talk about. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the title is where you can really play, you know. Sometimes I think a title, uh, or at least all the time, I think my approach is that a title um, describes very clearly what someone can expect or what they think they can expect. And then when you get into the piece, uh, you can kind of upend that expectation, you know. And so there's a real opportunity for me in a title to be um, as kind of tongue-in-cheek as I would like to be always, but don't always get a chance to be. Um, and I, I really try to take advantage of that when I can because I don't always get to. Another thing that really interested me, and the, there's a real point in the book, the, the chapter's called Fear, uh, Fear, A Crown. Um, and you talk about uh, Bernie Mac, and you talk about Mike Tyson and Buster Douglas. And this was the point in the book that I knew my dad needed to read this book um, because we huge comedy fans, huge Bernie Mac fans in the household that I grew up in. My dad was also a huge Mike Tyson fan, but but he would always speak more about the Mike Tyson-Buster Douglas fight than any other fight. Um, and so for me, reading that chapter spoke so much to things that I feel like I already knew very well. And uh, I, although I didn't know, I, I've explained to people why Bernie Mac says, I'm not scared of you, uh, individuals um a couple of times but i never actually knew the story that he was actually had you know it'd been a bad day on stage and people were getting booed off stage oh yeah but anyway i i digress um how much of what you speak about in the book how much of these topics are things that you just knew and how many of them are things that came to you during the process of research in the book so most of them were things that i knew vaguely or knew enough about, but not always that I knew extremely well, right? The art of research um, was revelatory to me in the process, but all of this was stuff, you know, like the Bernie Mac thing. I was like, well, I know that performance and I've seen that performance, Yeah, yeah. but how can I get to the bottom of or see what else was happening during that performance or on stage or all of that? Like, how can I, um, how can I find something uh, that I did not understand before? And so, and that was the process with much of the book where it was like, well, I know, I know this thing, uh, or I know this broadly, but I got to find out more. And then when, in the finding out more, there was more to find out. The more you find out, the more there's to find out, right? Yeah, always. Um, you know, it, it sent me down some really delightful rabbit holes and I learned a lot and, um very thankful for that process but at the on the baseline i did know uh you know i knew the the broader the broader stories yeah and i think i'm sure i'm not the only person who's read the book and in some ways is cursing you for the fact that i am now going to go and research so many things that i wasn't going to look up and i'm not researching them for a book that i'm writing i'm just researching them because you wrote a book um i told someone else's you know like my research all comes from the excitement I got reading something that someone else wrote. And then, you know, that, that research is going to help you down the road, I think. Oh, it will. It will. And and even if it didn't, which I'm 100% sure it will, I know I will enjoy it because there's so many things that you... And obviously, when you're writing a, a book like this, you can you can only go so deep and you can only put so much information in before, you know, you've written too much about a particular subject. So for me, I know there's going to be even more and little gems that probably you know but couldn't fit in or 
or work around in the book. Uh, that chapter also was the first point um, where I started to think about form in the book, um, because in that chapter, the, uh, I'm quite sure that that's a chapter where the end of each paragraph leads into the start of a, a new paragraph in the in the kind of language used. Yeah, it's like a fake, and, uh, fake sonic crown thing. Yeah, and and so you came, you know, the the book is presented kind of as a collection of essays, perhaps. But how much did you, were you conscious of playing with form? Yeah, I mean, I was trying to be playful and thoughtful um, and also keep myself engaged and also ask myself what the mode of storytelling needed. Um, Because, you know, sometimes I think that the mode of storytelling is asking for a different shape or a different, you know, and so, so much of that process was me just saying, okay, well, what can I provide that will make this a worthwhile and exciting visual experience for a reader, but also what will make it an exciting experience for me to pursue these curiosities in a way that um, is as multitudinous as what I'm pursuing in the book. I I often kind of find myself getting lost in kind of moments that maybe were planned or weren't planned. And so there's there's the epilogue uh, for Aretha in the book. And you talk quite vividly around the way that uh, Aretha Franklin, in creating this gospel album, it, and then it's often the case in gospel music, I think of, there's a British rapper called Governor B, who you might be aware of. I think of uh, Mary Mary who um, obviously have have made some amazing music, Kirk Franklin. Uh, And when I think of these artists, there's this thing that you touched on around how gospel music can almost be just for entertainment and it can be just for salvation. But if you come at it just for entertainment, you can't help but be elevated into this kind of space of whether it's holiness or, or spirituality, there's something about it that takes you there. And I, and that's something that I, I know very well as someone who isn't necessarily a religious person. If I listen to Governor B or if I listen to, to a Kirk Franklin song, I feel that elevation. And I wonder, within this book, there is so much that is interesting and there's so much that is entertaining that you could come to this book and read it, not necessarily wanting to receive all of the depth of this book, but you can't get away from it. And I wonder if there was an element of making this book as entertaining as it is, where you kind of pulling people into, yes, you might enjoy this story about uh, me being at the airport, sharing this this conversation with this man on the day that the formation video dropped, but you're now not going to get away from the fact that when I put a BLM sticker up at work, somebody felt the need to take it down. And were you consciously pulling people into something that might be deeper than they expected. I do think it's a it's a byproduct of the work, you know. I think um, it's a byproduct of the way my mind works in essentially attempting to um, convince people that you know the magic trick is that um, some things are always happening. You know, there's always terror or discomfort happening under even the brightest moments, and so these things have to exist concurrently. Um, they exist concurrently for me in my living. And so they by default have to exist concurrently for me in the, in the work. And so, um, you know, that, that feels, um, 
that feels important. The language in this book, the use of um, what I would just call poetry, but poetic language in the book is is so strong. And, and I would imagine that at times you could probably pull certain lines from the book and represent them as a poetry collection and you'd probably win an award for it. Um, but how I found that interesting because I kind of came at this book expecting less poetry than than I received when I read your poetry collections. Um, but how fine is that balance between being poetic, but also you're dealing with things that are very literal. Uh, I think about um, the, the, the end of the chapter um, where, where you speak a lot about Wu-Tang and everything starts turning into bees. Um, like how much did are you conscious of the poetics? How much, are, how much trust are you putting in your readers who might not necessarily um, read poetry? I don't ever think about it. You know, I, I, I think about, um, because I'm not really governed by genre, I'm, I'm just trying to kind of, I think, articulate, you know, I think there's so much stuff in my mind that's kind of a mess, you know? Um, uh, yeah, you know, I'm trying to balance a lot at once in, in the work and in my own head. And so um, the only question I'm ever asking is how can I, how am I, how do I balance this efficiently and with the most kind of thoughtful and careful language possible. And if that language can also like simultaneously um, approach some level of beauty, then that's a bonus, you know? Um, but yeah, the question is always, always, always like, um, how do I get to language that is both efficient, articulate and holding some beauty within it? And, uh, if that, I think, is what people would call poetic, then I'll, I'll happily take that. Something that I really appreciated around the structure of the book is these uh, little shorter uh, essays around on times I forced myself to dance. And they were, you know, often really funny, uh, still very, uh, still very deep in their, in their content, but, but very personal to you. At the point when you decided to to create those, I, I don't know how best to to describe them because they're almost like prose poems, diary entries, and and it's interesting that you say you don't really overthink about the, you know, is it poetry? Is it an essay? You, you you're just writing and putting it across in the best way. What was the thought? When did you decide to put those into the book? And what made you spread them out in the way that you did so they start each section of the book? Well, those were just writing exercises at first in between my first and second draft to kind of hone what I wanted the book to say and how I wanted it to be said. Uh, and I had about 20 of them. And we went through and picked out the ones that felt the most interesting and most exciting. And it felt like they were kind of guiding with that, without even me thinking about it. They were kind of guiding the themes of, of the sections that we landed on. And... Um, mm. But that wasn't, you know, those were all kind of just like free, free writes that I was doing while editing because it, it helped me kind of recenter the book's playfulness and the, the book's kind of um, bending of form and presentation. Um, but I never expected it to be, um, you know, I never entirely expected it to, to take hold the way it did. We end with, on times I force myself not to dance. And, you know, I, I personally, you know, I cried reading that chapter. 
and I wonder, I always wonder at times like this, and it's a conversation I also had with uh, Caleb Azuma Nelson when I uh, spoke to him about his book, Open Water. Uh, so I'm a big fan of Caleb, big fan of his. Uh, yeah, the book, uh, that book is just stunning. Um, and I'm, I'm so excited about what, he, what he's going to do next. Um, but in, in reading that chapter, I mean, it is the case throughout this book, and I know already that is the case um, through your poetry, but, but I'm interested in your take on it. How complex is it when you when you present that level of vulnerability on the page? First of all, how difficult is it to do that? But second of all, how difficult is it then to exist kind of in a world where everyone has seen that and, and taken that and, and sometimes want that from you? Well, the only way that I can effectively do it is if I don't think about the needs and desires of others, right? And if I don't think about what people might project onto me because of what I'm sharing, um, and that's really the only way that I can, because I believe in vulnerability and I believe in a type of vulnerable language and storytelling that um, helps illuminate the journey I'm on as a writer and as a person. But in order for me to really be immersed in that, I, I do have to divorce myself from whatever expectations people might have um, or project on me because I can't respond to all of it. I can't kind of hold all of that. And if I tried to, I think, and if I thought about it, and if I tried to respond to all that, it would make me more hesitant and more reluctant to tap into a type of openness, the type of openness and vulnerability that I'm constantly reaching for. Well, yeah, I think, and, and I think that one of the things that uh, I did discuss with Caleb is that kind of once you present yourself in this way, and I always joke that uh, I am the happiest poet with the uh, saddest poems. Um, and so people meet me and I talk to them and, and it's all laughs and jokes. And it's like, oh, Casey's coming to perform. And I go up on the stage and I come off the stage and those same people are looking at me very differently all of a sudden. Um, and there's that, there's that real balance of managing. Uh, yes, I have. Yes, I feel like this. And yes, I have felt like that. Um, but that doesn't need to be the center of every individual experience that you have with me. Um, and I kind of wonder then in the writing of it, how, what is your process or is there a process of, of getting this level of very honest vulnerability? And it's never, there's never the feeling of you're telling me more than you need to. There's never the feeling of you're telling it for effect. It always feels very much like this is genuine and important to tell. How do you how do you draw that line and, and make sure that you're you're being honest and you're allowing yourself to be vulnerable without kind of performing it for people because because you've you've achieved that so well particularly in that last chapter that w I would love to know if there's a way that you go about achieving that thanks yeah I mean I I think that I just have a, a, a built-in understanding of boundary right like I know I, I know when I'm pushing myself, I always have. I, I know when I'm pushing myself and I know um, when I'm pushing myself too far or sharing too much. A big part of this is because I live with anxiety. Um, and so it's important for me to understand when I'm exerting myself beyond my comfort zone. And I just, at this point in writing, I have a switch. Like I, I know, um, you know, I know when I need to turn off the faucet, so to speak. Um, yeah. And it almost happens organically now. And um, that allows me to, to push myself to a place that I know is safe, but also revelatory. And uh, to have that balance is really useful. There are real moments of a 
kind of attaching or anchoring is probably the, the, the phrase I'm looking for, anchoring this book in your own, not necessarily upbringing, but your own kind of adolescence and your own growth. Uh, and I'm thinking specifically around the um, the beef chapter, the, the James Brown and Joe Tex and Nino Brown and the Sandman. And I'm thinking about my own um, growth, my own kind of process of growing up in Birmingham and in, in England. And so much of it connects, you know, around being able to make somebody laugh might be the difference between you ending up in physical conflict or not. There's a there's a part around the fact that probably most of the people you with could have uh, handled a dance off very well, but why would they fix a issue through a dance off when when they could throw hands? And that like struck very much to me as as uh, something I was very familiar with. I would imagine a lot of people who are reading it are not necessarily familiar with that environment, but you've still kind of anchored it so well within that environment. Was there was that was there a conscious decision? that this book would kind of be rooted not just in the information and the facts about these people and and their stories, but how that connects directly to how you grew up and how you came to be who you are. Yeah, I mean, those things are all interwoven to me, I think. Um, Mm. The way I grew up and the people I grew up alongside are really woven into the fabric of who I am and um, the things I've seen and survived and built into my living uh, also kind of inform who I have become for better or worse, sometimes for worse, honestly, not always for better. Um, yeah, I hear that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, those things deserve space in the work too. They deserve space um, in my writing and they deserve space in the universe of stories I'm telling. And um, because if I am to be vulnerable about who I am, I need to be vulnerable also about who I was because those two things are, intertwined and and, uh, cannot be separated. You know, in your um, acknowledgements, you say you're gracious enough to say that kind of your, this this work and all of your work is is a kind of sum of what you've read, who you are, who you've been around. Uh, And I would would love for you to just signpost anyone who's listening at the moment. I don't want, I don't want to narrow this down to writing because I know you're a huge hip hop head, you're a big music fan. Um, and you've clearly have a, a great kind of base of reference for all different types of perform- performative arts. What would be the things that you would say to somebody you should check out? Like you should definitely look into this or listen to that or uh, whether those are current things or classic things. What what would be your signpost if I was to say, okay, I'm feeling like I want to get my creative juices flowing. What should I be looking at? What would be inspiring? Well, currently I love Dave's new album. Um Oh, how amazing is this album, please? Yeah, really impressive, you know? <laughs> like, it's it's hard to... It's, I, I think it might be better... I, and I love psychodrama. But I think it might be better in that, you know, it's tough because, you know, he's so young and so gifted and it's really hard to follow up an album like psychodrama, which, you know, I mean, won everything. And, um, but most yeah. importantly, it was just... That's a hard mountain to scale and he did it. And I, you know... Um, there's something, there's a lesson there, I think, in staring down one's past self and mm. to not think about the work as conquering your past self, but to think about the work as intertwining with the, that version of yourself that achieves something and getting back there. I mean, I think the new album is, is great. Um, so I would say Dave's new record. Um, Can I just, I, I, I almost want to 
I almost want to jump on that because I, I think there are a couple of tangents there that I'd love to explore. So somebody said to me recently um, that they they feel like a lot of the songs on uh, We're All Alone in This Together could have been on psychodrama. And they kind of said it as a bit of a slight, but, you know, there's something about us pushing, and this is creatives of all different forms. He created, for, for me personally, with psychodrama, such a phenomenal album. And it's almost like people, he has now created another phenomenal album. And in an attempt to to pull it down or to find an issue with it, people saying, well, this is just like that that amazing album that you just wrote. Well, yes, thank you. Um, and how much are we pushed to do something different for the sake of doing something different rather than continue to create what is great work? Yeah, I mean... What are your kind of thoughts? The new album's a continuation of... Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's in a lineage of his work. I mean, he's a... I, mm. I don't believe that someone has to extend themselves towards something different. I would rather see someone create, mm. um, if they can, to create robust and layered work within a comfort zone that is efficient for them. That's all I want to see. Absolutely. And I think Dave achieved that. Um, massive achievement. So I'd say that um, Adrian Matika's new poetry book, Somebody Else Sold the World, is great. Ariana Brown's new poetry book, We Are Owed, uh, is really great. Um, you know, those are the three ones that I'm most spending time with. But I always encourage, today's James Baldwin's birthday, so people should read The Devil Finds Work. Always. Always. <laughs> okay. And now the, the kind of, maybe the penultimate question. Um, what is going to be next to you? This is the worst question to ask people, right? You've just created this amazing piece of work. And really what you probably want to do is what I want to do, is spend some time with it because I'm spending some time with it myself. But what what is the next thing that we're going to see from you? What are you excited about that you're working on or looking towards at the moment? Uh, resting for a bit. It's been a busy era, so rest, hopefully. But, um, you know, in a few years, I have a book. I'm writing a book about basketball and about growing up in a good era, a golden era of basketball movies. Um, and that should be out in, like, 2024. And I'm, I'm currently going to pick up some work on that after I get a little rest. But resting is a big thing right now. I feel like rest is very, very deserved. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you for writing the book and continuing to write because it really is a blessing and a pleasure to to be able to be like here at a time when you've written this book and I can read it and then talk to you because it's exceptional. So thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to tell us about it. Leave us a review or a rating and find us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at BHamLitFest. You can download our latest podcast episodes every Thursday from all the places you would normally get your podcast and find transcripts of our episodes in the show notes. The Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast is produced by 11C and Birmingham Podcast Studios for Writing West Midlands.